Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former Viacom CBS International Executives Claire McArdle and Rebecca Knight about the launch of their new production outfit, Collective Media Group. Three Wise Entertainment's Michael Ford talks about the company's CBBC short film Freestyle made with deaf and hearing cast and crew. And MTV3's Yanni Hartikinen discusses the Finnish broadcaster's new drama about the rise and fall of Nokia, plus his priorities for the year ahead. Former Viacom CBS International executives Claire McArdle and Rebecca Knight joined forces recently to launch new UK unscripted production company Collective Media Group. Focused on developing, producing and distributing premium factual content from high-end series to popular entertainment, Collective has a particular interest in storytelling around iconic sporting moments. The company this month made its first hire in Latin America as it targets international expansion, and McArdle and Knight, Collective's co-founders and co-chief executives, spoke to Ruth Laws about their plans. Why did you launch Collective Media Group? So Rebecca and I sort of know, know each other. For, we, we'd worked together previously, both at, at Viacom, um, what is now Viacom CBS International. I think we, we, knew, we knew that we wanted to do something together. We knew that we had sort of complementary skill sets and, and, and relationships in terms of our, both of our kind of experience. And while it's obviously quite a challenging market at the moment and challenging sort of off the back of, of COVID, I think we could just see some real opportunities Opportunities through that combination of our skill sets, relationships, some of the conversations that we were having with sort of on-screen talent or, or sort of talent across the board. Um, also, some of the conversations we were having with people that now sort of work with us and things that they were doing and, and how we could sort of come together to sort of to, to create something meaningful. So that, that was sort of the thinking behind particularly Rebecca and I coming together and bringing that production piece and the creative piece together and sort of treating both of those kind of with equal value within a production company was something that was really important to us. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think it's that piece where, you know, both of us have been approached many times about setting up production companies with, with other people. And I think that it's only when you meet somebody, work with somebody, respect uh, and value somebody that you kind of go, actually, this feels right. This feels mm-hmm. the right space. This feels good. This feels like a real partnership. And I think that partnership piece is really key. I think it's, it runs through everything yeah. that we stand for in the company partnership is, is is really really important to us and, and mutual mutual respect I think yeah. that's why we came together and, and a feeling that we can make a difference as a, as a female-led um, production company we we have a different viewpoint I think than other production companies that, that might come together with different kind of mindsets you know, Claire and I think we think very very similarly in a very similar way sometimes we don't even do don't even have to speak we just don't even have to communicate yeah <laughs> don't even have to communicate and it's just been a real real joy to, to, to be to be coming out into the marketplace with something you absolutely believe in and are excited about doing it with somebody that you also really believe in as well. I would second that. I'm 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 blushing. <laughs> I would I would say I think it is I think part of that is you know, Rebecca and I talk about being sort of two sides of the same coin. And I think very often when you're in a scenario where you maybe have sort of two core production people or two core creatives, you you can that 
can work really well or there can be sort of areas where it's not sort of clear sort of who does what. And it was very important to us that we ran the company as co-chief executives. So we are, everything is collaborative and that sort of reflects, I guess, in the name as well as as being called collective and and thinking in that that way. And why are you focusing on factual content and sports programming in particular? So the the sports piece, that's something that kind of, we, we just have really deep, we have deep relationships there from sort of work that we've done previously and from the people that work within the within the team I think there's a desire in the market for sort of high quality shows in the area that we are focusing on but it also happens to be an area of extreme personal passion for me as well I, it's a uh, and for sort of various other people sort of with, within the within the team um, and in that sort of premium factual space those those are sort of where the the relationships that we have are sort of in the in the, the talent space and sort of access that's sort of where all the members of the team bring sort of really strong strong relationships and sort of as Rebecca said around that piece around being able to not not to get sort of you know very worthy but but there are there are stories that we're looking at and, and stories we want to tell that are that are important and should be heard and that's something that's important to us in terms of sort of editorially what we're doing within the in the company as well. I think that you know both Claire and I really believe in storytelling and there are a lot of brilliant stories in factual content and sports programming that haven't been told and told also I think from a viewpoint where you really get the emotion behind it not just about the actual specific sport and I think that's also really key for us. That's something that we sort of we want to make programming that you that you watch and you feel and sort of an emotional reaction to that could be that emotional reaction could could be joy it could be disbelief it could be elation so so that's that's something that's that's important to us in terms of what we're looking at across the slate as well. And how has the global demand for factual content and sports programming changed? I think we've seen a real growth recently in in sort of those stories being told from a slightly different perspective or with sort of deep access or new information or I mean you're you're you'll be hard pressed to find a commissioner who isn't looking for their last dance. <laughs> um there, there is only one Michael Jordan so that <laughs> that becomes increasingly difficult but there are sort of a whole a whole host of stories that are, feel important or stories from you know from maybe 10 20 years ago that are are, are relevant now are reflective of where we are now or where we should be going and I think that's that sort of driving that demand I think we all realized how much we missed sport when it wasn't on the agenda when sort of live sports was sort of shuttered during during COVID but I also think there is a again to that piece around sort of emotional uh, you know an emotional reaction to the stories I think that's playing out and we're, we're seeing some really high quality work in that space and that's something we want to contribute to. And just to touch upon that I think that you know sports is a global piece you know that it, it, it sort of transcends countries it tran- transcends culture it is something that everybody has a touch point into so the audience is global it's how you get below that into the into the bigger stories the deeper stories your touch point is open to everybody to sort of come and engage with. And I think this is what's happening in the market at the moment that's really exciting is looking at those stories that there is sort of some kind of universal point of engagement or truth or or sort of something that's that's kind of recognizable that opens that up to a broader a broader audience than just somebody who might be you know watching the football on a Sunday afternoon. It, it's 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 got to have something that sort of that, that feels more broader than that. And then I think sort of beyond the the sport piece, I think we're sort of moving into a place where sort of on screen talent, celebrity, whatever area they come from, are taking control of their own narratives and their own stories and they want to work with 
with partners that they trust. There is a desire from an audience for an authenticity in how and how stories are, are, are told that, that's compelling for both an audience, but is equally compelling for people who have stories to tell, that they are guiding that, that narrative. And you've recently um, pushed into Latin America, and I wondered why you chose there rather than another territory. So so, so the, the Latin American piece in particular, so um, from our time at Viacom CBS, both Rebecca and I worked in the international bit of the business. So, and that really, I think once once you've sort of worked in international, it's really, really difficult to sort of step back and just think about kind of one territory because you're sort of exposed to all of the opportunity that's out there, but also how sort of different, those points that where sort of there's kind of content that works locally and then there's the sort of that content that works globally. Um, I worked particularly closely with the Latin American teams at Viacom when I was there. And that was, a, it was a real sort of eye opener for me, but we built up strong relationships there. We have really strong relationships in terms of sporting and particularly football talent that comes from, from across kind of Latin America. You know, we have our partnership that we have with Entourage Sports, who, who represent a, a lot of talent, particularly from Brazil. So there, there we could see there were a whole host of amazing stories to be told. And that's coinciding at a point when the streamers are moving into that territory and looking at how do how, how do they fill their schedules. So there's sort of a, a really interesting moment for that market. But that's not where, where Latin America is something that we're concentrating at the moment. We have several projects in that space. We'll we be announcing uh, a project um, out of LATAM hopefully in the coming weeks that we've just started production on. But I think sort of broadly we have we have an international focus. There are, there are other territories that we, we have projects that we're looking in at the moment. But for us, we, we have the connections into the market. We have in particular um, in, in Ariana, somebody who works with us, who, who is deeply connected into Latin America and, and also has sort of deep relationships, talent relationships there as well. So it was it was something that sort of happened quite organically, but is sort of part of that piece of coming from an international background. Just to add to that as well, I think that as, as Claire said, it, it's very much about our background, understanding the uniqueness of, of LATAM, that it's lots of different territories in LATAM. Yeah. And they all have and they all have their quite rightly so they all they all have their own um unique stories. And I think that we see ourselves very much as an international uh, global company that is in the UK but really has an international global viewpoint and reach. But, but for us really the cause, as Claire said before, is about talent and about stories. And through our connections with all the Latin countries, we just know there's some really great stories there that need to be told. So it's just one place that we we are sort of further down developing stories in those territories. But we're also looking at Europe as well and looking at the stories there. So it's story driven, I'd say, Claire, wouldn't you rather than... Story, yeah, story and, and, yeah, and, and sort of and, and the, the talent that we have relationships yeah. with there. Yeah. You've obviously forged these partnerships in Latin America. Does, is it different to your strategy in the UK? Not particularly, I wouldn't say. I mean, we're, we're, we're incredibly collaborative as a, as a company. We love working with other people. We, we, it's, it's something that in terms of whether that's partnering with production companies or talent or that that's something that's sort of at the at the core sort of regardless of what territory we're working in I think that sort of sits across the board. And what territories are you looking at? You mentioned you were eyeing up Europe. It's as, as Rebecca said it, ten, it tends to be sort of story-led so we, we've got a couple of things that we're uh, a couple of um, pieces that we're looking at in Italy at the moment. There are other sort of projects we're looking at that touch on kind of multiple territories in terms of the source of the the, the stories or the access that we're 
we're looking at. We have a project that we're looking at at the moment that would potentially or would be for an Indian market. So it's very much a global viewpoint. I think it's worth just saying as well is is that when we say we're looking at lots of different territories, we are also thinking of multi-language as well. So, you know, when we are looking at at, at Latin, quite rightly so, you know, it would be Spanish or Portuguese. If we're looking at Italy, it would be Italian. You know, we're not just a English-speaking mindset in terms of telling those stories as well. Are there any challenges with producing multilingual stories? Yes. Yes. But that comes down to, you know, we really believe in in making sure that who is making, who is creating and making programming are able to tell those stories from within so it's really important we have producers who really can speak those languages and can engage with those contributors in the language they speak so as Claire mentioned we have um, Ariana who is Brazilian but also um, grew up in Italy speaks Italian as well and that is the sort of people that the talent that we want come in company people who can also own their their, their stories and own that production that's really important that it mm. is authentic yeah and it, and it is and it's one of the things when Rebecca and I are working in via on CBS and you know, part of what I was doing with the with the territories in Latin America was looking at what can we take what from um, Latin America works in um, in the other in other international territories there's, there's a history of a viewpoint that is kind of it's English language content that we take out to the rest of the world but actually so what we were exploring at Viacom and I think you see this sort of reflected in sort of the strength actually of what they're doing in in, in Latin America under sort of Fede Cuerva and JC Costa and, and those guys are are building something really special that they're, they're kind of then taking out internationally and I think that's something that that, that we've really carried with us from our time there is actually English language shouldn't necessarily always be the, the starting point and we're now in a world where the most popular show on Netflix can be Korean you know people people will watch it was all that was all but previously that was a real barrier people weren't used to viewing content that wasn't their language and reading subtitles or, or watching dubbed content the rest of the world outside sort of English language was very used to that but in terms of sort of English language markets not so much and that's that's really starting to shift and I think that's really opening up the ability to sort of tell stories from from kind of non-English language markets that can resonate internationally. Um, and you mentioned that you're very collaborative so I'm assuming the answer to this question is yes but um, <laughs> are you open to co-productions and what is your co-production strategy? Very very much open to co-productions. Our strategy is to be just very very open to any kind of dialogue and conversation and be sort of pragmatic about the fact that if we co-pro with talent or co-pro with local companies for example we're looking to co-pro with a production company in Brazil then that just makes us stronger and we can learn from each other I think that's the mm-hmm. other thing as well is just that we don't Claire and I don't run this company with an assumption we know everything you know we, we come in here uh, we can sort of come and talk and we go out to the marketplace with we're all learning you know it's changing very quickly the landscape therefore it's really important to talk to talent talk to other production companies look at places and ways that we can work together as I say just just to be stronger and yeah and and I think um, there's a value in everybody participating Mm -hmm. whether that's you know commercially creatively that's a way in which we want to work I think we both and one of the reasons we (laughs) work so well together we're both very driven by fairness (laughs) and sort of and that's really really important Mm -hmm. to us that sort of you know people are, are contributing or bringing projects 
that that's something that's done very collaboratively and and uh, a, a, across the board absolutely and it's really interesting because we've had a lot of um talent come to us to want to collaborate with us for that reason that you know it is an open transparent conversation and that we all are in it together sort of mentality and that we um we go we go forward as one and there's obviously been the growth of streamers over the past few years i wonder how you think this has impacted the production market and if it's changed content at all i, I think it, I think it, it's obviously had an, an impact and, and we're in an environment where suddenly there is there are a lot more beasts to feed and it impacts in positive and negative ways. It impacts in terms of, you know, there are a lot more people to, to take an idea to or to develop an idea for or to develop a relationship with. At the same time, there's sort of, there's a bit of a churn rate there in terms of sort of if something doesn't feel immediately successful, does it sort of just roll off the back of the, roll off the back of the treadmill as it were and um, so I think there are it's definitely opened up opened up the market I think from a production company perspective having sort of if you've got a really strong idea and you're taking that out to sort of multiple people and, and there's a bit of competition there that's that's a that's a nice position to to be in but I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of the, the proliferation of, of sort of different streamers and, and, and different channels and what that means to the pocket of the consumer how that's going to sort of develop over the next sort of probably mm. two to five years I don't think we talk about five to ten anymore I think ten who knows but it's it's definitely it's definitely an, a, an interesting market and from our perspective it definitely feels as if you're, you're knocking at sort of open doors a, a lot of the time that the, there is a desire on on the on the part of buyers to to sort of to have conversations to, to find the best content, which is encouraging. What do you think the future of linear broadcasters is in the future of streaming and the age oh. of streaming? Sorry, I mean, so talking sort of specifically about I guess the the UK and the linear broadcasters here and that sort of PSB remit. For me, they they serve sort of a, a fundamental role in the UK, sort of culturally, but also in terms of the industry. And I think they they are recognizing that they need to be in in you, know, you you need to present your content in the way that the audience wants to consume it and if the audience wants to consume it online then you need to serve them online and it mm. and it feels like the offerings from you know whether that's iPlayer or the ITV hub or um all four that that is something that they've recognized and are and are and are serving but and I feel quite passionately as an ex channel four <laughs> ex channel four person around you know, there's a really challenging times for the for the sort of the PSBs and the linear broadcasters but the values that underpin PSB broadcasting in the in the UK are so fundamental to the type of programming that we make out of the UK and sort of what that means both editorially and commercially for for companies under sort of operating under terms of trade and that what the linear broadcasters have have contributed to is, is an industry I think well we have incredibly high editorial standards particularly in our factual programming and that that's something that's really important and and that, that should be cherished. I think if that wasn't there, I think we'd all see the impact of that fairly quickly. As any factual programme maker from the UK who's watched factual programming from some other territories and gone, oh, you wouldn't get away with that at the BBC or you wouldn't get away with that at Channel 4. I think ultimately the linear broadcasters have driven that high quality programming and editorial rigour for sort of decades and if that's not there then I think audiences lose out and producers lose out and I fundamentally believe there's a place for those broadcasters and whether that is in the traditional you know turn on your telly at six o'clock way or whether it's through an expanded sort of online presence 
I would hope that they are very much still have a, a part to play in the in the sector going forward. Three Wise Entertainment short film Freestyle, co-written and directed by deaf filmmaker Samuel Dorr, is up for three Royal Television Society Awards on November the 21st. Made for UK kids channel CBBC and its standalone drama strand Snaps, the film was produced with a cast and crew comprising both deaf and hearing people. The story centres on Ella, a talented deaf swimmer struggling with life at a mainstream school, played by 13-year-old deaf actor Jasmine Wilkins. Michael Ford, Managing Director and Head of Content at UK Kids and Family Prodco 3Wise, spoke to Karolina Kaminska about how freestyle came to be and why the TV industry needs to do more to cater to the deaf community. Who approached who with the idea to create the film? How did you come up with the idea? And why did you want to make a, a project on that subject? So um, many kind of years ago, kind of 2008, I, I did a, a short film with a a deaf director and a young deaf boy that went on to win a, an RTS award. And that was kind of my first experience working with deaf talent. And as a result of that, I became quite kind of familiar with the deaf community. Near to where I live, there's a, a company called Zebra Uno, which is run by Nikki Stratton. And Nikki was the co-producer on Freestyle. And, and Nikki and I developed a really good relationship. And we started a, a kind of, again, a few years back, where I started developing a, a pilot for CBBC with a, a young deaf heroine and um, we worked with Nikki on that project. She kind of helped facilitated a kind of deaf focus group for us with youngsters and she was a consultant on it as well and, and really worked with us and the, the writers to, to create kind of authentic voices and to bring in all these genuine real elements to, to make the, the drama feel nuanced. And that, and that project didn't actually happen. We wrote a script, but it didn't actually get commissioned. But we built up a good relationship. And at the same time, I met Samuel when we started talking about who might be directors for this project. And so um, about a year ago, uh, CBBC were looking to do this series Snaps, which was seven monologues made essentially by seven different companies. And um, it, it was something that I'd been looking to do for a while. I've been trying to look and find another project where I thought there could be an opportunity to kind of work with with deaf talent so i approached samuel and i approached nikki at the same time and said there's this opportunity i think we could create a really great project together and then and from that during that focus group uh, jasmine the star of freestyle she actually attended that focus group we ran a few years back and remembered her from that and nikki nikki recommended her and so that's kind of how the project really came about and then as a result of that we set about collaborating on what it might look like and what the story might be. And so then working with CBBC, obviously you you had them in mind then because you saw this CBBC Snaps um, project. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how you went about pitching the show and, you know, and what it was like working with CBBC? So as I said, we worked with CBBC a little bit before. We had a bit of a relationship with them and this opportunity came about. They, they'd had another strand, which essentially snaps, but for teenagers. And so they got this 
definitely spark strands. So we watched some of those as kind of a bit of research. And, and I, I'd actually spoken about potentially making one of those and we, we weren't selected. And, and then there was this opportunity to do snaps. So we wanted to just go slightly younger on it. And I knew there was a lot of enthusiasm for the previous project we developed, but it didn't quite, you know, ultimately go. And I said, would you be interested in looking at a project like that, where we could really work with, with deaf talent? And and one of the, the big things that we'd spoken about, Samuel was really keen on and, and Nikki and Jasmine was that the project would be developed in British Sign Language rather than in English. So obviously that that's quite that's really important for somebody like Jasmine, who that's her first language. And it was a really interesting approach for CBBC and they wanted to, you know, be more inclusive and, and support new talent. And so they were really excited by that idea, which obviously comes with again some some challenges and some some things to kind of work out. But but that was really where the project began and how the first conversation kicked off. And then that kind of led into us developing the project in British Sign Language. And and the first part of that was that Samuel and Jasmine got together, just the two of them on Zoom, to get to know each other and to talk about her experiences and and to to kind of find the story. Okay. And so obviously the show was produced with a a deaf production team, cast and crew. Um, So can you tell us about the process you went through to source the talent both on and off screen? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so it was um, it was a hybrid crew. So it was a kind of mixed crew. So it was very much a, a kind of genuine hearing and deaf collaboration. And, and that was something, again, that we were keen to create from the start. A kind of big thing for us was that, you know, there's one of, one of the things that's been apparent to me since working with Samuel and with Nikki is that a lot of deaf content gets made for deaf audiences, which becomes very niche. And one of the things that we are trying to do together is create create genuinely mainstream programs that sit on mainstream platforms and are, are accessible by both hearing and deaf audiences. You know, it, for all sense of the purpose, really, it's just, it's another language. So it's no different, really, to somebody whose second language is, is you know, Spanish or whatever. So we kind of wanted to, to create projects where you can have cast with these different languages and it can still be a mainstream project. So we kind of approached the behind the scenes in the same way obviously I'm hearing but Nikki my co-producer is deaf you know Samuel's in charge he's deaf and he had his choice of DOP so he's director of photography she's actually hearing because Samuel already had a great relationship with her and a great rapport and 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 they communicate really efficiently even without an interpreter involved we we obviously had interpreters involved we had our sound recordist we had a deaf makeup artist and we, and we felt that was really important for Jasmine, that the first person she saw when she came in in the top of the day and helped her relax was somebody that could communicate with her really well um, and, and we and we, again we had a, a kind of hard of hearing runner and so, so it was you know it was really about trying to create a genuine collaborative process and and again we, we went to a lot of lengths at the start of the production to do a big team talk and explain how everything was going to work and explain where some of the the bottlenecks or the challenges would be and and to remind everybody really that it was just a language barrier so you know you are I'm talking to Samuel I'm not talking to Alban no offense Alban you know it's kind of you know that's what that's that's how it works it's you know if I'm talking to Alban separately that's fine but when I'm talking to Samuel I'm talking to Samuel uh, you know and that's just how it works so um yeah we 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 even had one of our um 
our kind of work experience who turned out to know sign language so she was our kind of work experience and standing for Ella and it turned out she knew sign language so she was brilliant so, so that was brilliant and I, I think probably as well if I can say something that was really important to us from the start was that as a character hearing kids needed to be able to relate to her because I think without being horrible a lot of hearing kids would switch on a project with somebody signing and would probably be more inclined to switch that program off because it's in they see it as not aimed at them and and the important thing was that we wanted to grab the audience from the start and make sure that they were at least intrigued by this character and that she was that her story is one of pain and she's gone through some problems and she's been slightly kind of bullied but it was also important that it was inspiring and it was important to us that she's funny she gets some funny moments in the story she gets to she gets her character she's mischievous she's all of these things and you know the first scenes of the film are her diving in and just action and you know we wanted to make sure that kids would be with her a little bit and give her a chance and one of the things that I was kind of really excited by was when CBBC came back and gave us the stats on how the episode was doing was that our episode actually performs above the average for the slot so it in theory kind of performed as well as if not better than some of the other episodes in the series and that was you know really great that was kind of the goal okay so of course we we know why it's important to create tv that's inclusive and diverse and obviously it's been a huge huge issue in the tv industry recently um, and to raise awareness of issues like disability and deafness um, but do you think enough is being done for the deaf community in TV? And if not, what more needs to be done? How can the industry ensure it's doing all it can to support the community both on and off screen? I mean, I think there is more being done now, but but I don't think enough is is being done. You know, Samuel have got, have got some other projects. I mean, I've got some other projects that we're starting to work on. And, you know, we're beginning to talk to commissioners about the content we've been doing and and I find that there's always a real interest in, you know, the inclusivity aspect of it, that oh, this is really interesting. But uh, there's still some of the same issues come up that are a little bit worrying sometimes. And, uh, you know, I still think there's a little bit of a we have our deaf show kind of going on. One of the things I've had said to me is, so it, uh, you might not know this, but I mean, you have British Sign Language, you have American Sign Language. So just like you have, you know, American English, and British English, and just like you have French, you have different sign languages all over the world in different countries. So again, when it comes to how well that travels, a character using British sign language, only so much of that will convey in America, only so much of it. So you you do need this, the subtitles. But again, I don't see why that's any different than somebody speaking French and that being subtitled or somebody speaking Chinese or Japanese. But there is a little, I still gets a little bit of that like, oh, well, there's so many different variations of sign language I'm like and what there's so many different variations of languages it's kind of it shouldn't make any different but but I do think that the you know you you get shows from everything from kind of Game of Thrones and Star Trek where they've each got their language 
languages that they speak that are kind of unique to those series. But then you get, you know, more foreign language content now breaking through from Squid Games, you know, to Parasite, to, you know, all, all manner of things, you know. And I think that the increase in people being willing to read subtitles for other characters really works. And, and I think that is slightly different as well for the kind of content, you know, that Samuel and I are trying to create, which is mainstream content, because we're not on about a program that only has sign language in it. You know, we're, we're talking about things like Sound of Metal, where there is sign language and there is English or there is another language. So it's much more real to life. So it's not like you have to read the entire thing necessarily. But yeah, it does ask you to sometimes read some subtitles to, to understand different characters. So I think a lot more could be done. I think we had everything with the kind of Black Lives Matter movement. And, and one of the, the stories that kept coming out were those kind of things, right? People saying we had our black show, we had our this. And, and now nobody would say that. But I still think we're getting a little bit of that in other areas. So yeah, lo- loads more needs to be done. And I suppose one of the things that I've, one of the reasons why I've probably enjoyed working with the deaf community over the kind of last, you know, 10 plus years is I also feel I kind of have a genuine role that that kind of isn't lip service to something or it isn't just kind of, you know, like trying to be a savior or something like that. You know, I, you know, women don't need me to help them tell strong stories about female characters, you know, People of colour don't need my help to tell their stories. But we want to create truly crossover content for hearing and deaf. So I can't tell the deaf story, but actually you're also I can be part of telling the hearing story. You know, Samuel does need my ears at times to tell part of the story. So I think there's a really nice, genuine collaboration that exists there. And so so you mentioned there, Michael, that um, you and Samuel are working on, on some other projects as well can you say anything more about that i mean we can't be too specific but it very much fits into the genres we enjoy you know uh we enjoy things like sci-fi and horror and coming of age tales and and things like that and obviously three wise is a kids and family company so it, there's it's it's in those realms of those kind of things that we grew up with loving and i think sammy and i both have quite mainstream tastes we we both appreciate really well told stories and characters but in quite mainstream commercial kind of settings he comes predominantly from a hearing family and so he, he really understands that kind of relationship of the deaf world to the hearing world and and there's a, a kind of genuine affinity there i think for it so when i watch those projects i didn't see them as deaf content. I just saw them as as films that were really well crafted and really well polished and and he'd worked with other hearing collaborators on them to ensure that there was a good soundtrack and a good sound mix, which again can sometimes get overlooked by deaf creators for obvious reasons and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but certainly when we're talking about wanting to create genuine mainstream crossover content, I just sat there and watched that film and enjoyed it and it was relevant to me really who'd who'd made it or the fact that I wasn't deaf it didn't matter and and that to me is just good storytelling I you know I, I, I don't need to be female or a different race to understand a great story and to empathize and, and get into good characters and good stories and and that's kind of what we want to create freestyle has been nominated for three RTS awards how do you feel about that so so from from my point in the RTS over the moon that's kind of you know we couldn't have asked for for, for more 
it's in three categories best scripted best screen acting and best production craft you know we're we're up against some really great programs there's kind of like time by lewis arnold which was starred stephen graham and sean bean which i thought was was great and and jasmine you know she's 13 it's her first starring role and she's up against vicky mcclure from line of duty for a screen acting award you know which is phenomenal and you know i, I think she did a brilliant job she plays obviously a character close to her age someone that she can have some shared sensibilities with but I don't think that detracts from from what she delivers, which is a kind of really warm, likable character. It was long hours. She worked really hard. And she really was great in the rehearsals. She brought so many of the ideas to the table. And, and I think it's testament to her likability that the show has performed as well as it has. Finnish commercial broadcaster MTV3 has commissioned a drama series based on the rise and fall of national mobile phone icon Nokia, debuting on sibling Nordic streamer Seymour in the new year. Mobile 101 is made by local Prodco Rabbit Films and is one of a number of new projects Telia-owned MTV3 is lining up for 2022 and beyond, with a particular emphasis on lighter-hearted relationship dramedies. MTV3 Head of Drama and Development Jani Hartikinen spoke to Ruth Laws at a meeting in Helsinki about these topics, plus the broadcaster's wider commissioning strategy, including his list of priorities for the coming year. The company was actually founded in 1957. I think MTV3 is the third oldest commercial TV in, in, in Europe. And, and we have, so we have a sort of a very long history here in doing television. And then, uh, in addition, we have the Seymour, which is the uh, export service. It's a Nordic operation. Basically, all of the scripted that we do is released on, on Seymour first, and then MTV3. So the, the, the drama travels really well on, on, on the uh, uh, export. And that's your usual strategy with drama? You put it onto the export service first? First, yes. And is that just because of the reach, because it's in all of the Nordics? Well, how we see is, is that the scripted drives the export business. So that's, that's the... Uh, and then we, and then how we operate is, is that, for example, I work for the uh, MTV, the FTA channels, and then Seymour. So I provide content for the both platforms, and the sort of a content is uh, handled by MTV, MTV3. And then before Telia uh, acquired TV4, Seymour, and MTV, we were part of Bonnier Group. Yeah, so we have a sort of a long background with TV4. And why did you commission Mobile 101? What attracted you to the project? It's based on basically on our strategy or what kind of content we acquire or commission is, is that we want stories that are, you know, if we commission original series, we want to have something that relates with the Finnish audience. So what we usually do is, is something that is based on, on, on a, a uh, true story or a big event that, you know, Finns, that there's some uh, awareness or knowledge about the thing. So Nokia is obviously a big thing in Finland. Mm. And I think that it, it's also something that there's been lots of, of documentaries and, and you know the sort of a facts, but there's there's so much behind the, uh, the, the sort of a facade. So we wanted to bring that story. How Nokia was seen by the people who were working in it that time. And, and when Marit and, and Rabbit contacted us, I was really enthusiastic about Nokia, the story. But what do you have, you know, under that? Theories that have sort of a are character-driven, have strong characters. You know, the story of the two young lawyers, mm. and then you have the engineers and the, the management team, sort of the leaders of Nokia and how they handle the situation. So, yeah, those were the reasons. Obviously, it's a big thing in Finland, the Nokia story. So it's, it's uh, 
that attracted us as well. As you guys know, Nokia had a very long background, and they were they were doing basically everything. But it was it's a brand that is known very well in Finland and was known before the mobile phones. For example, every other Finn had a Nokia rubber boots, and then they made cable stuff like that. And the mobile phones really brought the company, you know, on a, on a different scale, on a global mm. scale. And mm. and the story actually lasted not that long, mm. you know, the, the whole mobile phone and then uh, smartphones taking over the market and Nokia not being able to follow it. So, yeah, to some extent, uh, there's a trauma, yeah, national trauma, probably. But since then, Nokia has sort of evolved and, and, and they've... Uh, they are you know, now picking 5G, for example. So it's, I think that's, that's something that they survived. But it's, it's a big, big thing in Finland. My first reaction was that it cannot be a history lesson. People want to see you know, good stories and something that uh, touches them on an emotional level. And you need strong characters. It needs to be you know, character-driven story. That it is told that the story of the Nokia or some part of it is told through their people. But yeah, the first was it cannot be history lesson. <laughs> Yeah. How important is having big talent um, attached? Because it seems like there's some newer actors in the series as well as some actors who are you know, well established. Uh, especially if you are, you know, if it's a story that is, as this is a sort of a, well, we have a big event that is already people know it, but you also need good talent behind and in front of the camera. But is it a talent driven or the cast? We, 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 I think the casting was more like, the, you know, find right kind of group of actors that can work together and, and, and that was the, yeah. but we also there's we needed uh, talent that attracts bigger audience outside of Finland as well so that's why we have some international talent this is one of the most sort of a expensive shows that we've had so far I think it's most expensive for us now but yeah. there's something else coming up so we are what we are doing is, is uh, to some extent, increasing the uh, the budgets and then increasing the production value. But this is also, as as you know, it's, it's a period. So it happen, happens in the uh, in the 1980s. So it's usually it's a bit more expensive. You know, getting the finest together, it's a quite quite a puzzle. So there's a public funding from Finnish government, and then. You have the uh, uh, independent investors in this way. For example, we have the uh, Aurora Studios has been oh. investing, yeah, venture oh. venture capital. Then we have, uh, of course, we are the sort of a biggest financier. And I think that is that it's how it's going to be in Finland for a long time. Is is that the uh, the broadcasters or the platforms are the uh, biggest financiers? But in order to increase the budgets, of course, we need additional funding. One thing I, I always say is, is that the audience doesn't care about the, you know, how much money you put per episode, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you need to have a certain level because there's lots of, 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 of offering. There's mm-hmm. many, many shows around, so you need to keep up. But at the end of the day, the audience is not interested about the, how much money was put because you can mm-hmm. put two million in a per episode and if it's not interesting, if it, the, the story doesn't relate or doesn't work, they won't watch it. You can't get them on on front of, of TV or laptop or iPad that, you know, we put 10 million in this series. It doesn't work like that. And I know that the director has put lots of effort behind the uh, getting the facts right, getting the, the real people that were at Nokia. She's been interviewing them mm. a lot and, 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 and has done huge amount of work for the background. And, and then the uh, writing, we usually, how we work is, is we have a sort of a 24-month window, which means that when we sort of uh, start develop an idea it takes 24 months to get it on screen and 12 months is usually the, the writing part but it depends we've had projects that has been on development much longer mm-hmm. and then much shorter depends on how how far the producer has been developing the idea before it comes to us but usually we try to get uh, as early on board as possible
we've noticed that that's, the, that's sort of a sufficient time at least. So you get 12 months for writing at least and then 12 months for pre-production and post-production. Do you co-produce with other sort of broadcasters or anything like that? Yeah, that's that's something that we've done. We've, for example, earlier before we have been co-producing with Elisa, and and and, and then uh, there's going to be others as well. But what do you have in development at the moment? Mm, I think we have twenty, thirty something. You know, lots of projects in development in different stages. I'm actually planning now releases for twenty-five. Good thing is is that we have this sort of a I have visibility to twenty five, so we can plan well ahead mm-hmm. and then take product uh, then take uh, projects in development and and figure out that okay this will take a bit more time than this one and we can plan it if it goes into production it will be released. But we also tend to uh, work so that if we take something in development it is something that we most likely will release. We don't develop for sake of development. That's how we work. What have you greenlit recently? We, we just greenlighted or made an actually made the, the uh, contract about a, a uh, it's a formatted series. It's a Nordic Nordic series exit that we are doing a finished version. And we are doing both, you know, formats and original series. Main focus is on the original series. But I think that was uh, sort of a, we really wanted to see how it works as a finished version. Yeah, and we did the, uh, uh, I'm not sure if you know Swedish comedy series, Sul Sidan. We have finished version of that. Okay. And, and it's, uh, we've done four seasons of that already. And we're going to continue it, yeah. Do you tend to remake shows from other sort of Nordic countries then, or do you look further afield? Um, both, and we haven't done series. Those are the two series that we've actually uh, done as a format. But of course, we are looking at the, uh, the market all, all the time, that if there's anything interest. But as I said, main focus is on the uh, original Finnish stories. But it's, it's not that we wouldn't do. I mean, we're open. Um, and what other shows have you had on MPV3 that have been really successful? So far, we've released... Uh, 30-something original series on, on Seymour. And what works really well is this rhyme suspense. So I would say that half of our programming is in under that genre. But as you know, it's a really wide genre. You can have thrillers, you know, crime suspense. Then we have comedy. 20% is comedy. And then rest, 10% comedy. Then rest is, is half rhyme suspense and, and, and traditional relationship drama. I think that is the genre that we are going to invest next more. So dra- dramedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, drama series that have strong human relationship stories, love stories, stuff like that. So maybe less crime and more of that. Is that because of the pandemic, do you think, that after the coronavirus? Uh, I, I think people people really like to see, oh, well, as you asked, that what have been, you know, our big successes, for example, series called Ex on Elisette has been really good. And it's a drama comedy about this group of people that live in this building that is a divorcee house. And mm. they have these apartments that are divided between this <laughs> wall between two apartments. And then uh, they, they live so close together that at one week, the other party lives in the, uh, in the other apartment and then they change the apartments. But that's just a gimmick of the show. It's more like, you know, relationships between divorced people and their new partners and their kids and everything like that. So it's really sort of a warm, warm heart drama comedy that has been working really well for us. Then on the other hand, what's been successful, uh, we just launched detective stories called Maria Kallia, which is a, there's a female detective and, and it's about, you know, her story. So very traditional detective story and it's been working really well for us. What is really popular for us is our daily soap series. So what we see is, is that if you have something, especially on OTTS for service, if you have something that has lots of episodes, lots of seasons, people 
if they commit, they spend lots of time with those those kind of series. So daily soap works for us on, on S-Word really well. And have audiences for the soap ever waned or have they always remained consistently strong? What we've seen is, is that they move to digital platforms. So the show... We have, uh, you know, we have quite steady audiences on our linear because the, the soap show is on, on linear. Then we have it on Esport and we have it on Avod as well. So what we are seeing is that younger viewers are, are going more on the digital level platforms. So that's that's happening. But we still reach lots of different audiences. So it's, there's lots of, of, you know, these 50 to 24, 12 to 24 year younger audiences are following the show. And we have the sort of 25, 44 years old, and then plus 50 viewers follow it on digital platforms. And then we have different window and strategy on, on linear. We release it five times a week. On Esport, we release the week's episodes on Friday. So the next week's episodes are released on Friday. That works really well on the S, so we get lots of traffic. There's also acquired programming on our Seymour. But it's just the offering is quite wide, and I think that's the... Uh, how, how I see that we can make it in this market this is that there's, you know, as I said, there's scripted, non-scripted sports and movies and, and kids stuff and everything. What do you look for in acquired content? Because I noticed when I was watching MTV3, you play Emmerdale, which um, is quite funny because that's a very yeah. British soap. So I wondered, is, is that what you look for? is huge in Finland. Um, well, what we are, you know, they're basically, uh, you know, the um, usual international crime series, whatever, comedy. It's a wide wide range but there's not you know limited amount of talent and we are producing more than ever mm-hmm. uh, in Finland especially on scripted side but go goes as well to the uh, non-scripted side so that's why we want to work like I said we have a sort of a planning ahead that we can get the best talent to our product projects so it's the worst thing is to be late we need to get something out next January okay what should we do it doesn't work like that you have to plan well ahead and have sort of a long-term visibility. Yes. Finland is very competitive market in yeah. terms of television and streaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in TV, we have uh, 20, I think 20 uh, free TV channels. And, and of those channels, 15 is commercially, are commercial TV channels. So YLE has one, two, three, they have three channels and the rest are commercial channels. So it's, it's really competitive market. And on streamers, we have uh, Seymour, Elisa, then we have Root, which is the uh, Nelonet channel. They have their service. And we have YLE and we have the streamers. And then we have, of course, Discovery. So this is really, really competitive market. The traditional model has been that broadcaster commissions something and then the producer has the rights. And then you are not able to see where it goes after your sort of a license period. It's outdated for, for this new business where you have to have the sort of a... And now you need... And, and you are collecting the... Uh, Viewership comes from smaller streams, whereas when you had two channels in Finland, you released a series and you get two million viewers on the first episode, so that's it. But now it's smaller, you know, the amount of viewing is smaller, so you need to have it on the shelf. It's it's a totally different business model compared to the linear. If we are the biggest financier, usually we have the biggest share. But of course, producer has the share as well. Well, And then we we want to keep so that the producer, we are not working like Netflix at the moment, that we would acquire everything and leave the producer out of it. And I think in order to get the uh, financing package together, producer needs to be able to uh, finance the, get the finance, for example, on international rights. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. 
The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.